0: They, they, uh, for eye to eye, they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord, for Yahweh, has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord, Yahweh, has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is very much about the gospel. And I know it is because later you will find that Paul actually quotes this passage when he talks about gospel preaching in the New Testament. But until then, turn in your Bibles to Mark, the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. For you ladies in the ladies' Bible study that'll be looking at Mark, you should be happy. I'm starting out with Mark, it just fits. We're beginning a new series, seven parts. And it asks a question, what is the gospel? So that question be in your head as I read Mark 1, verse 1 through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, He immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove and the voice from heaven, You are My beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. What I read to you from Isaiah 52, what I read to you from the Gospel according to Mark, it is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You that You have delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And You have transferred us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As we think about the gospel. Oh, walk us through it afresh so that we may once again be overwhelmed by it, please. Amen. You may be seated. So on the back of your worship guide are the sermon notes, and there are no notes because there's only one point. I don't have a lot of points. There's one point. And I'm going to talk about one thing the whole way through. But there is a quotation there that I want you to get to in a little bit. So as I said, we're beginning a new sermon series, What is the Gospel? It's going to be a seven-part series. And when I ask that question, what is the gospel, I'm referring to specifically the contents, the message. Gospel, by the way, means good news, and that's the connection with Isaiah 52, by the way. Now, I know that this question may all sound rather rudimentary because, well, you know, we're all Christians. Somewhere in the past, I remember listening to a White Horse Inn episode where Michael Horton was giving a diagnostic evaluation of Christian history. And it went something like this. One generation knows and declares the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The last generation loses the gospel. My friends, I don't want us ever... ...to be part of the assuming the gospel, losing the gospel generation. That's the whole reason for this whole series. I want us to always know what the gospel is and tell others. Therefore, in preparing for this series, I did some rummaging around... ...quite a bit of rummaging around through several sources. And the results were not a complete surprise, but it was disappointing. In a nutshell there is quite a bit of confusion about what the gospel is. Now, I won't bore you and I won't depress you with all the details, but I do want to give you two very small samplings. So first off, there was a Christian magazine 15 years ago that asked its readers, give us the gospel in seven words. Seven words, already think about how insane that is. Give us the gospel in seven words, and they got a whole slew of answers back. Now, it's valuable to ask that question, give us a, or put it that way, give us the gospel in seven words, because it makes you think. But you have to understand, it's in seven words, so you can't be terribly critical. But some of the responses were rather disconcerting. For example, someone wrote in and said, here's the gospel in seven words, love God and others, obey and serve. Some replied and said, be not afraid. God is with you. That's the gospel in seven words. Another one responded and said, here's the gospel in seven words. God loves me. God is with me. Here was an exciting one. The gospel in seven words. God is the essence energy of life. That sounds like when we were in the 70s and we used to have, you know, the tie-dye headbands and t-shirts and stuff, you know weird others said here's the answer to that question the gospel in seven words do not uh, who we are who God says we are depends what they mean they might be pretty close here's the last one I have God refuses to be God without us the gospel in seven words And then several years back, on a different level, several years back, I went to a conference, I was at a conference, and there was a very big name, Calvinistic, reformed speaker, and he stood up, and as he was preaching and proclaiming, he said with utmost authority, justification is the gospel. Hmm. Now my reason for giving you those samples is not to shame or sass anyone, but it does help us to see that there is a ton of confusion out there with regard to the content of the gospel. And sometimes there's confusion where there's this overemphasis of one point of the gospel that gets elevated to become the gospel. So both of those are problematic and both cause lots of confusion. I appreciate what Daryl Bach wrote in his little book. This is your quotation in your sermon notes. What Daryl Block wrote in his book, he's a Dallas Theological Seminary professor, when he wrote a book called Recovering the Real Lost Gospel, and here's what he says, he notices exactly what I'm noticing. Quote, the cross is the hub of the gospel, but Jesus dying for sin is not the entire gospel. In fact, only to speak of Jesus dying for sin, even to speak of Jesus dying for sin and rising again, is to give only half of the gospel message. I appreciate his bold statement. And so we're going to answer the question, what is the gospel? We're going to begin right here in Mark chapter 1, just very quickly looking at, starting with verse 1, this whole section here, but really just verse 1 and then verse 14 and 15, because it gives us a hint of what the gospel is. And notice how it begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whatever else the gospel is in the end, you better be talking a lot about Jesus. You know what I'm saying? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news, a declaration of him, yes. But then notice how Jesus himself becomes a gospel preacher down in verse 14 and 15, which gives you more indication of what the gospel is. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, if you're astute listeners, and you are, you already realize there's an innuendo there. If this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is preaching the gospel of God, wait, is there a subtle hint that maybe they're the same person? Yes! So here's Jesus preaching the gospel of God, and what does he say? He proclaims what? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom... The rulership, the dominion, the sovereignty of God is at hand. It is nearby. Repent and believe the gospel. Here begins the heralding of the good news of Jesus. And lo and behold, Jesus Himself is heralding the gospel and it's the good news that God reigns. That God, that it's, a, it's the good news of His dominion, of His rulership. That it's arriving here, now. So whatever else the gospel is, and whatever else the gospel includes, it is definitely a message that has political, governmental, constitutional consequences. Your God reigns. And it calls for utter allegiance. And my friends, that's the centerpiece, the central thought of Isaiah 52, 7-10. When you were back there and we were reading Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, and you realize it's the scene where everybody's anticipating the coming of the herald. Herald, herald, proclaim good news for us, would you? And he says, as he brings peace, as he brings righteousness, as he brings salvation with the message, he proclaims the gospel. Your God, what? Reigns. And all the rest of those verses, verse 8, 9, and 10, is wrapped up in that. About God reigning and rescuing. My friends, I know that this is the message, that, the, that the, this message of God's rulership is the foundation. It's not all the message. It's the foundation of the Christian gospel. Because Paul quotes Isaiah 52 and verse 7 in Romans chapter 10. So if you want to go along with me, go to Romans 10. You want to write this reference down and look at it later. It's fine. Romans ten verses thirteen through fifteen. Paul will quote Isaiah fifty two seven. He first he says so he's quoting another passage. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so then he answers a question, two, a bunch of questions. He says, who then shall call? Who then will call on the name on, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And the good news in Isaiah 52 that comes over to Romans 10, and I'll show you in a minute, is your God reigns. It's a huge point. And so again, whatever else the gospel is about, whatever else it's a message of, it is a message of, first and foremost, the sovereignty, the dominion, the lordship, which Paul, here in Romans 10, will place all of that on the shoulders of Jesus. Go back to verse in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Notice how Paul puts it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's kingly language. Not only that he's Yahweh of the Old Testament, but that he is Lord. He is the sovereign. Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, one believes and is justified by Jesus put on God's good side. And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Notice how Paul takes what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 52, 7-10, and he puts it all upon Jesus, and he says, here's the foundation of the Gospel. Your God reigns, and lo and behold, it's Jesus. That's the beginning of the message. Now why would that be important? Because... It's the promise of all the Old Testament. You heard me read during the announcements, those of you who were in here, Isaiah Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the what? The government will be upon His shoulders. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Oh, yeah. The rulership of God Pictured and given to us in Jesus Christ, the King is the ground floor of the gospel. Which fits those of you who are listening as we went through Second Chronicles, those of you who are here on Christmas Eve, you know, this fits, this is in keeping with what the Lord promised to David that he would build David's dynasty and he would raise up one of David's sons and he would sit as king forever on David's throne. The ground, the gospel is, your God reigns. Now if this is all true, then we should expect maybe to hear about this rulership with regard to the gospel in the New Testament in places, so let's take a quick glance at three New Testament passages. Two of, them are, uh, two of them specifically have to do with proclaiming the gospel to non-believers. And then we're going to go to another passage. So we're going to start with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You know the story, but if you're looking there, we're going to end up at verse 36 here in a minute. But in Acts chapter 2, here's the first Pentecost after our Lord's resurrection and ascension. Jesus had said to the disciples, not many days from now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, it says three times. And on that day, Peter rises up then and begins to preach the gospel for the first time after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He starts with the Old Testament. Hey, this is all happening because this is what Joel talked about. And then he spends all of his time from that point on talking about Jesus. Who he is, what he has done, will do, his, uh, what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. But notice where he ends in Acts 2, verse 36 in the sermon. He's already hinted at this all along, and now he says it clearly. Let all the house of Israel know, for certain, that God has made him, made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you've crucified. When Peter said that, he's pointing to very specific language. He is the king and he is Israel's Messiah, the promised, the the one promised descendant of David, the kingly, priestly Messiah. It's all very highly charged language about the rulership of God, and it's Jesus. He made him to be both Lord and Christ. You go over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, after Saul the persecutor has persecuted the church and Christians are scattering hither and thither and yon, it says in verse 4 and 5, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, the writer Luke doesn't give us more detail about what he proclaimed, but he proclaimed the Christ. And so then you get to verse 12, and you get a good sense of what that included, that he was preaching the gospel. It says in verse 12, and when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, the rulership of God and the name of Jesus the Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and the authority, and the ascension, and the coronation of Jesus the Messiah, the name of Jesus the Messiah. Oh, he preached the gospel, and it was, your God reigns, and his name is Jesus. And then you go one last place. Okay, I'm a preacher, there may be more places. But here, I pretend this is one last place. It's Philippians 2. We're going to use Philippians 2 in a minute for our confession of faith. And those of you who were here Sunday evenings as we walked through Philippians, you know that Philippians 1, 27 through two eleven is the centerpiece of Philippians. It's the very heart of Philippians. As Paul was dealing with issues that were amiss in the church at Philippi, he lands on the gospel because it has everything to do with being remedial to what was going on, the problems that were going on. And it's interesting. He lands on the gospel. He talks about Jesus. Yeah, he's the eternal son of God. He became man and so was and continues to be God, and man and two distinct natures and one person forever. Right? He's equal with the divine, with God. And yet he didn't flaunt his divinity. Instead, he emptied himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and most people stop right there. When they're talking about gospel, that's about as far as they go. But Peter, Paul will not stop. He's preaching the gospel to the church. And the Father and God has highly exalted him. Those of you who are in class today, Psalm 47, that language should ring some bells. And God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should what? Bow! Wait, 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 wait. That's rulership language. Did you get it? That's rulership. Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow before him, declaring allegiance. Every knee will bow. Of Those in in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. There we are back to kingly language. Now on that day, Some will confess that Jesus is Lord with doubled up fists and clenched teeth because they can't stand it. Yes, he's Lord. And others will say, yes, Jesus is Lord. But notice how Christ's kingship is the center or is the foundation of the gospel. I cannot emphasize it to you enough. So, of all of the things... Here's the first thing we come to see about the content and the substance of the gospel. It is the proclamation that God, the rescuing, delivering, saving God reigns. He reigns as sovereign over all the earth. He reigns as sovereign and ruler over all the nations. He reigns as sovereign over my house over your house, over the state house, over the White House. He reigns as sovereign over all. That's the ground of the foundation of the Gospel message. And it's in keeping with His promise, God's promise to David that this reigning God can be, is met in this son of David. The crucified resurrected, enthroned, Lord. Now there's more that can be said and more that will be said about what the gospel includes. But this is really a good place to begin. And since this is in a sense the big picture aspect of the message of the gospel, the overall framework of the gospel, then what are some things that it means for us? Well, first off, Though we will talk more in the future about forgiveness as part of the gospel, it is just that. It is part. It is a result. It is a benefit. It is a promised consequence. But forgiveness is not the gospel in and of itself. The gospel is all about fidelity. Right in the sense of the response it should get from us and how what should result from that. It's about fidelity. Jesus preaches the gospel and he says, "Repent and believe." That is another way of saying, "Change your allegiances from your fleeting, fleecing." feckless loyalties and come over to Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. Now I know that's the case. But that's what that repent and believe means for various other reasons. But there is a historical example. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And he wrote about a biography, which was weird because almost nobody wrote biographies. But he wrote a biography of his life about 100 A.D., and at this point in the story of his life, he was the commander of, Judea, of some Judean armies, and he's having a problem with some bandits of Israelite or Jewish bandits. And so he goes and finds the head of this bandit, this brigand band, and he calls him to meet him. And so, after some hook and crook and some cloak and dagger, he finally meets him. And he says to this bandit, He says to the bandit, quit this nonsense, this rebelliousness. Repent and believe in me. Almost identical in the Greek in which it was originally written. This is highly charged allegiance language. Repent and believe in the gospel. Change your allegiances. That means, my friends, that first and foremost the gospel is not a sales pitch. The gospel is not a sales pitch. The gospel is not an invitation to group therapy sessions. The gospel is not a fire insurance policy. Hurry, quick, sign here. I have no problem with fire insurance policies. I have no problem with group therapy. I have no problem with salesmen. I used to be a recruiter in the military. I have a problem with a few salesmen, but not all salesmen. You know, right, the vocation. But it's not any of those things. What is it? It is a call to come and bow before the great King. And as you bow before the great King, You will find, unlike any other king anywhere throughout all of history, you will find this king, as you bow to him, kneeling down and taking you by your chin and lifting your face up to you and saying, my brother, my sister, my friend. That's amazing. And then beyond that, he takes us and as we bow to him, he draws us into his inheritance that we don't deserve and have no claim on. Oh, and even more, he brings us into the loving, warm fellowship of the royal family that none of us have any claim to. He cleans us up. He sets us in a new way. And he makes us part of something that none of us have a claim to. Something bigger, something more amazing, something grander. He brings us into his world rescue operation. It's something very close to the point that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 1 that, Peter, that Alan read as a call to worship. Colossians chapter 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Do you remember the golden buzzer? He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, how do you do that? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son, His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, liberation, emancipation, the forgiveness of sins. That's pretty big stuff. It's a call to bow before the great King who is saving you. Just a little side story I was thinking about this, this morning is that Phil Darnell and Adam Clark and I, three, three generations of Air Force vets, we met at Cheddar's there in Midwest City. And while we were there at Cheddar's, we were waited on by this waiter who was flashing his new tattoo. Well, I've got tattoos, you know about that, right? And so finally I realized, oh, well, he wants somebody to ask him about his tattoo. That's why he's got his sleeve rolled up so you can see his tattoo. His name was Eric. I said, Eric. So uh, Eric had those contacts in where his brown eyes were like piercing hazel or something, right? He had some contacts in. He, it was very weird. I said, Haze. I said, Eric, I said, tell me, most, of you, most people have stories behind their tattoos. You clearly are showing your tattoo. What's the story behind your tattoo? Well, then he sides this way. It's a voodoo doll. He says, I've been studying for years to be a high priest in voodoo. And I've gotten to the level now I can wear the tattoo. I went, hmm, great. And he walked away and Phil looked at me and Adam looked at me and we all went, wow. And so he comes and he serves us. He did a fine job. He got a great tip, by the way. I gave him a great tip. But he came and served us. And as he left, I asked Phil, I said, would you like to pray? And Phil goes, no, no, look, you pray. I said, okay. So we prayed, we gave thanks for the food, and then we prayed for Eric that he would be rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And that's gospel praying. right? And now you can pray that because you understand the foundation of the gospel. Was he converted because we prayed for him? I don't think so, not while we were there. But God can do amazing things. Your God reigns. And his name is Jesus. And so, my friends, to declare and to announce the good news about the rulership of God that is met in Jesus Christ means that you calling upon others, and even yourself at times, to submit to Jesus and to rely upon Him. And as you do that, I want you to know, you're on the right side of history. No matter what MSNBC or Fox News or anybody else says, you really, as you bow the knee, as you submit to Jesus and right, rely upon Him, you're on the side of true justice and equity. We may not always act like it, but we really are in the end of the story. We're on the side that draws people in. Think about last week's sermon from, Isaiah, from Psalm 46. We're on the side that draws people into the only secure, safe place they can be, into the city of God where God is in our midst. While all creation may be being moved and while the nations rage and the kingdoms totter and are moved, you are calling upon people to come. To come and bow to Jesus with us and you will be coming into, out of the storm and you will be coming into the city of God. The city that is not moved because the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, your God reigns because the Lord Jesus is with her and has her. And you're calling on people then to repent and believe the gospel, to turn and to trust and throw their allegiance on him. It's important. Now my friends, let me end with this. I know talking about submitting is not a very American thing to do. But we are all submitting to something. Every last loving one of you. Me, all of us. I know because Bob Dylan sang about it. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're exactly right, Bob. My friends, you and I are all bowing to something. We're bowing to some Lord. We're bowing to some sovereign. We might even and most likely be bowing to the sovereign self. Tipping my hat to Carl Truman here. But I want you to know that they may all be very pleasant. They may all be very pleasing in the moment. But in the end, they are all self-destroyers. All these other lords and sovereigns. And so here's good news. The kingdom of God. The rulership of God. Of the good God. Of the God who came and humbled Himself to the point of death. Even the death of the cross for us and for our salvation. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new way forward. Repent and believe the Gospel. And as you repent and believe the Gospel, you will find He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, you have emancipation, you have liberation, the chains, the shackles are broken, and you are set free. Believe, repent, and believe in the Gospel. And So I hope, if you've never, ever, ever, ever done it, that today will be the day Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, what great news. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. The God who came and humbled Himself, taking upon Himself the form of a servant, submitting Himself to the cross on behalf of us as people, rising again on the third day, and now ascended into heaven and given a name above all names to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Oh Lord, I pray that our lives will show that we we are relying upon You and submitting to You. And I pray if there's anyone listening who's never done it, Day would be the day. Thank you that you, O oh God, have delivered us from the dominion of darkness. You transfer us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. May we walk forward in great liberty. The liberty you have bestowed upon us in Jesus. Amen.